Okay, so we have uh, chapter 13 is where we were or where we are, and last week we were in verses 8 through 13. Now in that message last week, what we're talking about, that message is called the wisdom of man. And what we were considering was the agreement that basically had been come to by Moses and the two and a half tribes, right? There'd been those two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And they had come to Moses, and they had uh, basically uh, proposed this concept that they would say, you know what, we want to receive our inheritance, not in the promised land that you have set aside for us, but what we want to do is we want to receive outside of the promised land. We looked and saw, and it looked great. And based upon what they saw, they decided, you know what, this is what, this is what we want. Now, unfortunately, Moses acquiesced to that. We talked about this was a fail, failure in his leadership. But we noticed three things last week. We noticed that their plan was contrary to God's intentions for them, his provisions for them, and it was also contrary to his his uh, conditions for them. So what had happened is God intended for all of Israel to inherit the promised land. That was his plan. He set aside this people and this place that they would come together. This would be a place where they would experience fellowship with God. This is a place where they would experience peace with God. But again, those two and a half tribes, they looked at what was available and they said, you know what? What their, their main concern was their livelihood. What we saw was they said, we're men of cattle, and this is good land for cattle. So what they did was they prioritized their livelihood over their relationship with God. Now, that's something that happens on a regular basis, right? People get so wrapped up in their careers or what it is they want in material goods or material wealth that they're willing to sacrifice their relationship with God in order to have the things of the world that they desperately desire. Is anybody familiar with that concept? Might have seen it in someone else's life, probably. But... This is actually this desire for material things. And because of that misdirected thinking, what we saw, like these Israelites, people miss out on what God has for them. Boy, God has this expectation, this abundant life that he wants us to have, this to experience while we're here on earth. He wants us to walk in fellowship with him. He wants us to walk in peace with him. And what happens is people miss out on that because their eyes are set in the wrong place. They miss out on his intentions for them. And we recognize the fact that, listen, not only that, but they also and people as well in our day and age, missed out on his provisions for them. So his provision was for them. that He said, listen, I know exactly where I want you to be. I know what I have for you. And they allowed what they saw, and this is key, they allowed what they saw to influence their hearts and change what it is they wanted. So though God had provided something much, much, much better for them, they said, you know what, we will take the short-sighted approach, we'll take what looks good, and we'll settle for that. And it's, that's unfortunately, is a picture of kind of the half-hearted relationship that people have with God. So God says, this is what I want for you. And people are like, hey, you know what, but if I come to church and I, you know, I pray a little bit and read a little bit you know, and, and talk about God and sing a couple songs every once in a while, that's good enough. You know, I, this half-hearted version of Christianity that I'll create and manifest for myself, that'll, that'll be good enough. I'll, I'll settle for that. And it's unfortunate because people miss out. Because of that superficial relationship with God, they miss out on what they really could have. And they're like, man, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I've tried God. I've, tried, yeah, I've heard that over the years. I've heard plenty of people say, I've tried God. It doesn't work. 
You know, and the statement that we have to say if somebody said that is, is like not the God of the Bible. Maybe the God you've manufactured in your own heart or maybe religion told you us, but not the real God. Because I can tell you when you have a relationship with him, it's unlike anything you can experience on this planet. There's nothing that can supersede that relationship. And because of the mindset of people, what happens is they see the Bible as a self-help book for humanity because it's all about us. And see, it's that self-centered mindset that we have. We think everything revolves around us. Right? As we're children, that's the way that we grow up. Everything. Man, I'm hungry. Guess what? You know, put me to bed. I'm, I'm thirsty. Give me something to drink. I'm, you know, I, I said hungry, put me to bed. <laughs> Let's just say it's like, you're hungry? Well, go to bed hungry. No. Uh, <laughs> hungry, I feed you, right? So, but the whole thing is the world's sort of around us. And then as we grow up, you know, we're supposed to change out of that. We're supposed to become more mindful of other people. But unfortunately... We live in a society that tells us it's all about me, 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 me. So the Bible, just like that, we adapt the Bible again. We supersede what God intentions, God's intentions are. We make the Bible about us. We read it from the perspective of going, what can I get from God? How can I adapt what I need to learn for me to make myself better so that my life will be happier so I'll, I'll succeed? And yet the Bible is in actuality a revelation of who God is. It's of who God is. It's what God does. It's what God's expectation is of us and how we should adapt our lives to fit what he wants as opposed to trying to adapt God to fit what we want, right? So it's a completely different perspective, missing out on God's provision. And then you see it over the doors as you leave here, and we talk about all the time. We have a shirt that says, it's not about me. It's all about him. And that's the perspective that we need to have as we live this life, if we're going to fulfill or experience what God has for us. And what happens is contrary. So not only were they contrary to, uh, to God's uh, intentions for them and his provisions for them, but it was lastly his conditions for them. His condition was that, listen, you're going to wipe out the population that's in this place because, listen, they're going to impact you in a negative way. They're going to draw you away from me. He warns of that before they ever get there. He reinforces that same principle. Don't, don't let them get them all out. Drive them all out. Drive them all out. Drive them out. But yeah, you know what? They go, well, I mean, he probably didn't really mean that. Not everybody. So they allow some of them to stay. And sure enough, the, the, the impact of those people will be that they will turn their hearts away from God. And they will embrace the gods of the people that they were supposed to eliminate. And we see that and we go, wow. It says because of the series of choices that they made, that the result was this. These very people that have been offered an opportunity to walk with their creator in perfect fellowship lost everything. They lost it all. And they literally went from where they had been taken out of slavery, brought out and offered an opportunity to finally have the ultimate freedom and a relationship with God because of their selfish choices and because of their short-sightedness, fell right back into the same pagan beliefs. And guess what? Ended up going back into the very slavery that God had restored them out of. And it's just like people of today. People get saved, and you know what? They don't consecrate themselves unto God. They don't seek the Lord. They don't give Him their whole heart. And over a period of time, because of the things they allow in their life, over a period of time, guess what? They start to get entangled with things of the world. And next thing you know, the very bondage that they had been delivered out of years before, they're caught right back up in it. Not because God didn't deliver them out of it, but because they chose to put themselves back into it because they would not do it God's way. That's, we, and we talked about it. It was like, listen, that message, wisdom of man, which is what we talked about last week, it's an oxymoron. Our wisdom is not wisdom. What did the Bible say about that kind of wisdom? James 3.15 says this, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. It's destructive. And what happens is people will embrace the wisdom of, of wisdom of man, and in doing so, they will reject 
the wisdom of God, which is the Bible. This needs to be the defining factor for our life. This should be the guide for everything that we do. This should be the lens that we see the world through. When I, when I look at how the world impacts me, it always should come through the principles of Scripture. Because if we'll do that, it'll keep us, it keeps the guardrails up, right? So that we don't end up in the ditch, right? With so many people live their lives in just a series of crashes upon crashes. And God, get me out of this. And God, get me out of this. And God, me out. preacher, you won't believe what's going on in my life. Blah. You're like, well, hey, how's your walk with God? Man, nah, it needs to be better. Okay. Well, it's good to at least to be aware of that. But there are people that believe, you know what, okay, I'm doing great. I'm doing fine but yet their life is still a traumatic mess. Now, God does allow traumatic messes in our life because guess what? Sometimes he needs to get our attention. Sometimes we just need to wake up because we're, we're clueless. But what we've seen, what not to do last week, right? And we looked at those two and a half tribes and we go, okay, let's not do it that way. That selfish mindset, that short-sighted mindset. What we're going to see today is an example of, some, of, a, of a tribe that actually did things the right way. So this group is going to be more consecrated. They're surrendered to God. They're submitting themselves to his desire for them. And today's message is called a godly inheritance. And what we're going to do is verse number 14. So we're in Joshua chapter 13, verse number 14. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, for the way that you have worked uh, in the book of Joshua to open our eyes to so much uh, from this Old Testament story of, of battles and wars and land and giants and all the stuff. And God, how you have directly related it to our own lives and how we can see the things pictured in their lives in ours. Thank you for what you have revealed so far. Thank you, Lord, for uh, speaking to my heart. You know that I have desired, uh, God, not to have my own agenda or have any perspective, God, that I want to share. I'm just simply trying to take what you give us, Lord, and to, to reveal the truth that you need us to hear as a church. Lord, I know that you've spoken to me. I do. I'm confident of that. And I'm asking you, Lord, now to speak through me. I know that my stumbling tongue and my wandering mind would want to get in the way. And uh, Lord, uh, no one needs to be here for me. I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way. Uh, use me, Lord, in whatever way you can. And I pray that you'd take away the human element from this message as you preach it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Joshua 13, verse number 14. It says, Only unto the tribe of Levi he gave none inheritance. The sacrifice of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance. And he said, as he said unto them. Now, the first thing that we notice here in this phrasing is it says, he gave none inheritance. And I know you're thinking, but pastor, the name of the message is a godly inheritance. Okay, bear with me. We're going to take a little bit of time to understand what that means and, and how it all works out. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to really kind of dig into who the Levites are, understanding where they come from and what their lineage is. We're going to understand why this God is uniquely going to care for them like any other, any other group in God's family. And as we do that today, we're going to be considering how God provides for this tribe in a unique way of, of, uh, of looking at the Levites' identity with God. We'll look at their responsibility to God, and we're also going to look at God at their dependency upon God, okay? So first of all, who are the Levites? Where do they come from? Okay, so their identity. The Levites are descendants of Levi, okay? This is the third born of Jacob and, uh, Jacob and Leah. Now, this is in Genesis 29, if you want to go and read about them. So Levi is the third son. Now, what happens is uh, Jacob is going to be later renamed by God. He's going to change his name from Jacob to Israel. So what we see is Israel's son, Levi, later on, they're going to move to 
Egypt, right? Remember, there's the whole thing, the famine that took place. Joseph made the way. They came to Egypt. So those 12 sons came to Egypt. And over a period of time, over about 430 years, guess what? They procreated, and those 12 men turned into 12 tribes that now represent the 12 tribes of Israel, which was used to be named Jacob. So Levi is the patriarch or the starting point for that, that tribe of Levi. Now, the first time we see the Levites mentioned in Scripture is actually in Exodus 4.14, where God's speaking to Moses, and he says this. He says, Aaron the Levite, thy brother. So Moses and Aaron's, Aaron are descendants of Levi. And what's interesting about Levi's story is it's a rather sorted tale. Um, Levi and his brother had a anger issue, we might say, okay? <laughs> they had some, some stuff going on in their hearts. They were not right. And what we find is when we go to Jacob slash Israel on his deathbed, he's giving an inheritance unto his boys. And this is what he says of Simeon and Levi. This is his take on his own sons. Simeon and Levi, verses Genesis 49, verse 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi, Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, Come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. There was a sister, they had a sister named Dinah, who was defiled by someone, and boy, they, they, they got revenge in a, in a horrific way. Verse number 7 says, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So here we see that Jacob slash Israel is distributing inheritance to his sons. Now what's interesting about this is this is not only foreshadowing what we're going to eventually see in the book of Joshua as the inheritances are distributed, but it's also foreshadowing or talking about prophetically the judgment seat of Christ where the father is going to distribute to his sons. And guess what? You and I are going to stand before the Lord one day and God's going to distribute an inheritance to us based upon the things that we do in this body. Those things both good and bad. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 mentions this. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So the Levites, listen, like you and I who were born into sin, right? That's where we come from, born into sin. The Levites have a stigma that carries in their life. This is directly linked to a sin from their forefather. Do we see the picture there? So our, our guess amount the sin that's tied to us all the way back to Adam and Eve, but we see a sin that's carried back to Levi. And what we see here is God is going to shift or change their destiny, their identity. And there's a pivotal moment in the Israelites' history where this takes place, where the Levites are going to change who they were. And we see it in Exodus chapter number 32. Exodus 32, this is where, and if you go back and read this chapter, this is where uh, Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai, right? He's gone up to receive the Ten Commandments. He's gone for about 40 days. That's a good little while. So what happens, the people have got kind of a, a history of being in Egypt. They have a history of paganism. They have a history of, of idol worship. So in that idle time, right? No pun there. Idle words, idle, whatever. Um, but in that time, they decide, well, hey, maybe Moses isn't coming back. So, you know, we need a God of some sort. So let's say, let's crack off our earrings. Let's throw some gold in the thing. Let's see what we get. Well, they come up with a golden calf, and they start worshiping this thing. And God tells Moses, boy, you better get down there, bro, because it's getting crazy. I can hear some bit going on. And when they're going down, Joshua, who's with Moses, is going, man, I hear a fight. Then he's like, no, that's not a fight. That's a party. And they're like, oh, boy, let's go. And Moses comes down. He's got the Ten Commandments. He sees what's going on. He's like, are you kidding me? Boosh. He shatters the Ten Commandments, and he goes into the man, and he starts handling business. 
So here, this is it. This is where he's 32, uh, 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp. Everybody's like, oh, dad's here. And said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And notice this. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Okay, so in a pivotal moment of failure of character and of faith in God, this golden calf moment, they had fallen back into what they knew before, the picture of you and I as believers. Listen, we fall back into the world. We find ourselves in moments where we've, we've let God down. We're not where we need to be. Our, our life isn't where it should be. And there's a moment there where we go, you know what? Man, I'm going to recognize. What happens? They recognize their failure before God and their betrayal to the Lord, and the Levites make a choice. Notice they're the only ones called out by name. Listen to the wording of Moses again. Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? And the Bible says that the Levites gathered themselves to Moses. They said, us. We're on the Lord's side. And God has 3,000 men killed that night. The Levites end up, they do, they do some hard stuff because he says, listen, if you're really on my side, do what I tell you. Let me see. And what we see is this, this pivotal moment. They gather themselves unto Moses, and God chooses them. They choose, or God chooses them to be changed. He changes their destiny. And so it's at that moment their allegiance is now to the one true God. And in that same moment, they are rejecting the gods of the world. They're rejecting the gods of Egypt. They have chosen God, and they have forsaken sin, right? Do we see something that you and I can relate to? You and I were faced with the betrayal that our lives had been. The betrayal, listen, at the time when we came to know the Lord, where there had been a time in our life when we came to the realization that, man, you know what? I've lived my life for myself. I've lived myself to fulfill my selfish, fleshly desires. My dedication has been to me and not to God. And we came to the recognition that we saw that in ourselves. And we were willing to say, you know what? Man, there's something else. God in that moment offered us something. He offered us a moment we could choose which side we were on, who is on the Lord's side. We could see Jesus on the cross and we'd say, Lord, you know what? He's given me a moment. He's given me a choice that I can make. It's by the grace of God, by the amazing love of God that he offers us salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. This is what we were created for, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Notice the word there that says should walk in them. When we get saved, that doesn't mean that we will walk in them. It means we have the ability to walk in them. We have the ability to deny our flesh. We have the ability to walk in the Spirit, but that doesn't mean that we do. He says that we should. That's what we were created for. So there's, there's some more refinement that has to take place. So but do you realize that as Christians, we make this choice every day? So maybe we receive Christ as our Savior. Praise the Lord. And that's an eternal thing. Once that's established, that's done. But then there's the continuing sanctification because guess what? You live in a body of flesh. And so once we get saved, now there's two inside of us. There's two wills. There's two minds. There's two hearts. There's two desires. There's one that desires to walk with God. That thing inside of you that, that draws you to want to do the right thing. And when you do the right, when you do, to do the right thing, and when you do the wrong thing, that sense inside of you like, oh, right? I should not be doing this, right? 
I'm not having to hold down wickedness in order to do good. What's happening is I'm holding down the goodness in my heart because guess what? Naturally, I know I shouldn't lie. I know I shouldn't steal. I know I shouldn't cheat, but I just did. And you know what? Ugh, I feel this, ugh, this conviction, right? That conviction, if it draws you to God, that's the Lord, right? That's called godly sorrow. But then there's what's called the sorrow of the world, and that's guilt. And what does guilt do? Guilt draws you away from God. So if you do something wrong, and it makes you not want to read the Bible, not go to church, and not pray, it is not godly sorrow. It is guilt, because it'll draw you away. But if it's godly sorrow, you're like, man, you know what? I failed you, Lord. In that situation, I shouldn't have handled it that way. I'm so sorry. That's the kind of stuff that you're in your car, and you're crying out, just talking to God by yourself. God, I failed you. Man, I'm sorry. He's saying, hey, okay, failure's a part of life. Learn from it. Let's grow. Let's go forward. Let's, let's do this thing. So the reality is there are people out there that are, that are, that are uh, trying to refine their walk with God. They're trying to recognize and see their own issues in their own heart. So following salvation, there's that aspect of sanctification. Will we live for, for God or will we live for ourselves? We have to make a choice. We've discussed that aspect of personal holiness, the whole uh, the, the, the tie to, to the land of Canaan, which is a picture of our, of our walk with God where we're in fellowship with the Lord. And there's that aspect. What does it mean to be in the land of Canaan and to fully possess it? It means that we're walking in righteousness. We're, we're holy unto God. We don't have a lot of sin that we need to deal with. And I've been talking about in discipleship this week with the guys. And it's like, you know, there's the big sins in our life that, that we think, well, I've, I've dealt with that. Well, see, with Joshua, we've seen the picture there. Right? The strongholds have fallen. The kingdoms have fallen. The kings have fallen. So the big things, the big sins are dealt with. But there's all those little things, the population, all that little sin that's peppered throughout the land that we're okay with. The thing that they become okay with. And it's not okay. Bitterness, envy, strife, whatever it is, little stuff. That we're like, well, it's not a big thing. It's not a big deal. But what happens is we become so comfortable with these little sins, these little things in our life, that there's a creates a distance between us and God. And, though we, and we can't even see it. Because you go, well, man, I'm not, I'm not robbing. I'm not stealing. I'm not, I'm not sleeping around. I'm not doing this. I'm, uh, look, all the big kingdoms, I've knocked them down, man. Those strongholds are done. But what about the population that's interspersed in there? We've got to be willing to look at all those aspects of who we are. Because you've got to realize, and one thing that's very important is for us to know, holiness is not what we do. It's who we are. And see, religion will tell you it's what we do. You can trick yourself into believing you're holy because you go to church, because you give out tracts, because you pray, because you, you, you go work at the homeless shelter, because you, while the, you can tell yourself because your flesh loves stuff. It loves to do things. Why is it when we do something nice we want people to see it? Because our flesh loves recognition. But to do things in silence, to do things from the bottom, from the, from the goodness of our heart, that's showing who we are. Character, right, is, who, is what, it's who we are at our core. And when we, have, when we truly love the Lord, it doesn't matter if there's a crowd to see it or if you're all by yourself. You're exactly the same person because the audience ultimately is God. It's that accountability to the Lord that we have. You see, upon choosing Christ, God changed not only our destiny by saving us from hell, but he also changed our identity. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12 says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye, notice the wording, should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light 
which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, listen, talking to us, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. He tells us that because he knows that, that, that we can be uh, lured by our fleshly lusts. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Saving your, he says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so through our Lord's love for us, displayed on the cross, you and I were reconciled unto God. We experienced, listen, uh, our own defining moment where we are able to see, I know who I am, I understand my failure, and I understand that God loves me in spite of it. And we received Him. He separated us. Uh, We understood that our sin separated us from God. As we committed our hearts to the Lord by faith, just like the Levites, God changed our destiny from destruction to deliverance. And so understand, not only did He change our destiny, but also gave us a godly identity. Notice what it said, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people. And guess what? Just like the Levites, they had a new and a greater responsibility to God. And so do we. And so the second point is this. After being sanctified for God's use because of their dedication to him and rejection of all of the gods, the Levites, led by Aaron, who's their high priest, Jesus is our high priest, would be entrusted with being the Lord's representatives to the earth. That's their new role. The entire book of Leviticus is about them. It's about all of the the detailed breakdown of the specifications and responsibilities, the ordinances that they would implement and be maintained by the Levites. Numbers chapter 18, when you go and you read it, it's an abbreviation of the duties of the of the Levites, and I'm going to read to you what I wrote down. Say, so administering. So their, their their responsibility was administering God's law to His people, caring for, assembling, and disassembling the tabernacle, transporting the tabernacle. They were to work as the caretakers of the Ark of God. Now, the Ark of God, remember, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as well as a picture of the Word of God. And guess who were the ones that were supposed to lift up the Ark, lift up God, lift up the Word, the physical picture was the Levites. They were performing performing sacrifices on behalf of the people and functioning as teachers of the Word of God. So to be a Levite, what happened is their, their existence all revolved around one thing, representing and serving Almighty God. That's what they were here for. The Levi's ultimate purpose, their life's purpose, was to glorify, glorify God. Now, they did this through the way that they lived their lives. We would say their testimony right, what we saw through their life, but also the service that they rendered to their community in the name of God. But do you remember what Peter, when he was explaining as us, as the royal priesthood, he gave some responsibilities for us as well. Verses 11 and 12 said this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, okay? You work on your your holiness, set yourself apart, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, okay? Being a representative to their community. Their testimony spoke volumes that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, your service unto God, your service unto the community, which they shall behold, what does it say? Glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the same thing we're supposed to be doing. So we see the Levites, their ultimate responsibility is to glorify God. It's the ultimate responsibility that we have as well. Just like them, 
That's our ultimate responsibility, that God will receive glory through the life that we live. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is that what we're doing every day? Does God receive glory through the way that I interact with my wife, with the way I speak to my children, with the way that I talk to my coworkers, with the way I handle myself in public? Is it the way, in the way, that, I, the way that I think or feel or act or sing, all the things that I do, is God glorified through the life that I that I live. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So everything in your interaction with the world, that's supposed to be everything. Eat, drink, whatever. You're saying, listen, I don't care what you're doing. Do it for the glory of God. That means we can pick up trash for the glory of God. That means we can plunge a toilet for the glory of God. That means that we can serve the poor for the glory of God. That means that we can paint a house for the glory of God. That means that we can open our mouth and talk to somebody, be kind to them, and smile for the glory of God. God's saying, listen, everything you do, let, let, let the, 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 the pervasive or, the, or, the, or the, the driving force of every choice you make be that you would give me glory through the life that you live. And that's something we have to be always reminding ourselves of because it's very easy to become distracted by the things of the world that change our hearts. And many times what will happen is we want to think about how people perceive us. It doesn't matter what people think of us ultimately. The Bible says that all who shall love godly shall, be, shall suffer persecution. So what the Bible says is the world hate, you know, when he told the disciples, he said, the world hates you because it first hated me. So it doesn't matter what the world thinks. If we really live for God, guess what? There's a good chance the world's going to hate us. There's a good chance the world's going to stand against us. And you know what? We have to be okay with that. Because ultimately, as God pleased, that's what matters. See, our Savior modeled this for us in the way that He lived. The things that He accomplished while on earth. Notice what He says in John 17, verses 3 and 4. And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Notice this wording here, verse number four. I have glorified thee on the earth. The way that I've lived this life that you've given me for 33 and a half years, I lived every moment of it for your glory. What an example for us to follow, right? And then look at the next part. I have finished the work which thou thou gavest me to do. He's talking about the establishment of disciples. So he's saying, I lived a life. I had a great a testimony that glorified you in the way that I lived every part of my life. And then the other thing that I did was I invested in other people so that they could do the same. Okay, so here's our example. Jesus glorified, glorified God on the earth, invested in others so they could do the same. And the question is this, is that what our life is doing? If that's the example to follow, which is to live a life that glorifies God in all that we do and invest in the lives of others so they can do the same thing. And we look at our lives and we go, okay, is that, is that what I'm doing? If I'm really going to assess my walk, my, my existence as a Christian, as a representative of Christ, is that what I am doing? Now, for some of us, we might go, yeah. But for a lot of us, we probably could say, no, that's not me. Now, listen, today's not about trying to tear you down. Or point out the fact that, you know, you failed God or discourage you or have you leave here going, yeah, I stink, I'm, I'll never be good enough. No, that's not about that at all. Because, listen, we're all failures at some level. But what we remember is the fact that, remember those Levites at their moment of failure, okay? Because you got to realize Aaron was their leader. He's the one with the golden calf. The Levites are right there like, woo, let's do golden calf. They're in the middle of the party. 
I mean, the whole thing's raging, man. And it's not till Moses is like, what's going on? And it was that realization of failure. In that realization of failure, we either go, you know what? No, no, no. I'm justified in what I'm doing. Or we go, you know what? God, I am wrong. I see it. And you know what I'm doing? I'm going to choose. The Lord's side. Decide to change from there moving forward. Turning our backs on the things of the world that are pictured in, in Egypt. And saying, listen, I want to earnestly do the right thing. I want to serve the Lord. And we hear this and we go, okay, I want to do that. But someone understand, it's possible for any of us. No matter, listen, our education, our upbringing, our intellect, or our ability, none of those things matter. God doesn't need us to be some superhuman in order to use us. Living proof. I'm just telling you. If you know me for real, you'll be like, dang. It's just the reality. We don't have to be something special. We don't have to have special abilities. We don't have to have talent. God's looking for a willing heart. That's all he wants. He's the one that does great things. It's his power that accomplishes stuff. He needs vessels that are willing, a clean vessel willing to be used by God. And God says, you will be amazed what I can accomplish. Remember what Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? That was the delineating moment. That was the thing they heard that said, you know what? I'm changing. I will no longer continue on this path of destruction. I choose to be on the Lord's side. And it's not easy. It's easy to be on the world's side. It's easy because you can blend in with the crowd of this world. And man, there's no issues at all. No bumps in the road. But boy, when you stand up for righteousness, uh, Alina was telling me she had a conversation with with somebody and she was talking to this girl about holiness because the girl, they were having a conversation and she said, you know, it's not about being happy. It's about being holy. And her friend was like, sounds like you need to be a nun. Right? It's just ignorance. People don't know. Because you know what? Those that are seeking happiness, they would ever find it. And the great thing about holiness is the byproduct of that is happiness. We get the garbage of the world out of out of the way. So we see here, along with the new identity and responsibility, there is a new dependency. Listen to how God explains his plans for the Levites to Aaron. Numbers 18, verses 20 through 24. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth. He's talking about the tithe. He says, in Israel for an inheritance for their service, which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Neither must the children of Israel henceforth come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear their sins and die. He said, listen, you're going to take the responsibility of doing the sacrifices. But the Levites shall do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they have no inheritance. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an heave offering unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore, I have said that I have said unto them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. They're not to have a physical inheritance. They're not supposed to have a responsibility on the earth. And this is the key. See, God rewards the Levites' commitment to Him by providing everything that they need, allowing them to give their whole hearts to service unto the Lord. That's the beautiful picture here. And you know what? As the body of Christ, do you know that realize that God does the same thing for us? Jesus describes his provision for us in Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33. Listen to this. Therefore, <clears throat> take no thought, 
saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or whither all, whither all shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. And here's the key. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God tells us, look, I'll make provision. God's telling us that as we function in the world, that it will do it from a place of confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. God provides everything. Listen, your home, your car, your family, your health, your talents, your abilities, everything that we have, God has provided it for us. He's provided it for us for it to be used for His, for His glory. And see, it's only through this knowledge, you have to know this truth. Because it's not until you come to the recognition that it's all from God, that you can fight the pervasive uh, the culture of fear that, that, that has a stranglehold on most people. Most people are so worried about tomorrow. So I got, but I got, 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 I got. No, you don't have to anything. God will. He's all he's asking from you is to be faithful. Listen, give me your heart and watch. I will provide for you. He said, what he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Before that, he says, listen, I know your needs. I know what you want. I know what you need. And guess what? Not only do I know it, but I can easily provide it. But all I need from you is faithfulness. And there's the rub. Because faithfulness takes work. Faithfulness takes that denial of self. Faithfulness takes a willingness to stand against the tide of the world. Because I tell you, the world does not want us to be faithful. Boy, when your kids are going to school and they've got a friend that doesn't go to school, or doesn't go to school, they have a friend that doesn't go to church, can I tell you, man, the idea of missing church, they're not going to go, hey, man, you know, you should prioritize God. They go, no, man, you know, church is stupid, man. Come on. Come on. The world's constantly whispering to our young people. God's not important. That's all just a fabrication of man. That's just a crutch for people that are weak. Come on, man. I had another conversation with a man from Russia yesterday. Um, and, he, and the very same thing I told you guys about, um, about my friend about the, in, in Russia at the time. This is in the 80s when he was a child. And they would bring the children in front of the school at like 8, 9, 10 years old. They would bring them to the front of the classroom and they would literally have all the other kids ridicule them for their Christian faith. They would laugh and point at them. And he said that he, then the KGB would come and take them to the office and would tell them that they needed not have this faith because it was for weak people. Your parents are stupid. Your parents are weak. And you don't need to be weak. You need to be strong and learn how not to trust in this imaginary God. That's, they were inundated with that as children. He told me the same story last night. He said, the same thing happened to me. Can I promise you, guess what? That's what our world's doing right now. Maybe in a little bit more of a, a subtle manner, but it's the same garbage trying to draw people away from a holy God. Because listen, faithfulness to God, that's what he requires. So if he can get, if the devil can get us to be unfaithful, well, guess what? God's faithfulness seems to drop off too, because guess what? God's not going to reward us for being unfaithful. And yet people are like, and, and then people look at their lives and the mess that they've got, and they go, wow, look what, look what God did. No. Our lives are a result of our choices. We've got us where we're at. God's the one who gets us out. That's why he says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you, man. He'll drag you out of, out of destruction. Are we prioritizing the Lord in our lives? Now, to answer that question, it is very simple to figure it out. If we'll honestly consider what consumes our thoughts, our attention, our time, and our finances, Right? If you'll evaluate in your heart and you go, okay, what has my thoughts, my attention, my time, and my finances? 
Jesus said it this way, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay? So the heart is the issue. God wants our hearts. So then he goes, okay, so wherever your treasure is, the thing that you value, that's where your heart is going to be established. So if you're in love with money, guess what? Your heart is established with money. If you're in love with your family, that's where your heart is. It's established with your family. If it's in your career, it's established in your career. Whatever it is, whatever hobby you may have, whatever thing you may be involved in, wherever your thoughts and attention and time and finances are invested, guess what? You worship that thing. The word worship comes from worth-ship. What is valued? What is valued? And what this is talking about is in reference, in reference to things that we value over God. We can worship things. It's natural within us to worship. Like we talked about last week, people's desire to want to know about celebrities. It's just silly and stupid. But yet people want to know these things. Because guess what? They'll have posters of these people. They'll have pictures of them. They'll read about them. They'll spend more time reading about some idiotic celebrity than they'll ever read of the Word of God. They can tell you the name of someone's children and grandchildren and the person they cheated with and blah, 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 blah. And you go, well, you know, let's quote a little scripture. And they're like, well, I mean, what do you think? I'm like, I'm a genius. I don't know that stuff. But you can recite the Cardassians' whole family to me, for goodness sakes. <laughs> Guess what? Because that's where their heart is. And there's the issue. What is it that we, that we worship? And people go, not me. But if you compare and you say, listen, I'm going to be honest with myself. And I'm going to look where I spend most of my time thinking, where I focus my attention, where I am literally giving my time, and where do I invest my finances? You can easily tell what God you have in your life. Children, hobbies, career, family. It's easy to evaluate. And we compare what we've invested in those things to our investment in our relationship with God. And so when we look at the idolatry that takes place with the Israelites, it's very easy for us to go, man, how could they? I mean, it was just 40 days, man. What in the world? After all they saw God do. I think many of us can say, man, I've seen God do some pretty amazing things in my life. 40 days without God in your life? 40 days with no contact with Him? I tell you what, you'd be amazed what you can get yourself involved in. You fall right back into the garbage this world has to offer because guess what? You lose sight of where you are to serve. I assure you, idol worship is alive and well in, the day, in our day and age. God's provision is a result of faithfulness to Him. And so He needs to be first in our life. He needs to be priority in our life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore ye eat, drink, or whatsoever ye do, again, do all to the glory of God. It doesn't say do some. Do all. Everything to the glory of God. And then there's another level of individuals, another level of surrender, a commitment at a whole other level, like these Levites that have dedicated their lives to God, to the service of the Lord. There are people in the world that, you know what they do? They forego a secular career. They go, listen, you know what? I could do this in the world. I could do this in the world. I, have a, I used to want to do this, da, da, da. but you know what? They go, you know what? I'm going to surrender. I'm going to surrender myself. I'm going to surrender my family. I'm going to surrender everything that I have to full-time ministry. As I said, we had missionaries, that uh, friends of ours from Zambia, Don, uh, Dan and Janice, and we spent a wonderful time with them. But just the heart of those people, they're so sincere. They have raised their children on the field in Africa. And you know what they've done recently? Their last daughter just went to college, and now they're going back, just the two of them. They're in their, I don't know how old they are. They're, all, they're around our age, I should say. They're not young spring chickens. Um, and you know what they're excited about doing? Camping in the bush. 
They're excited that they don't have the responsibility of their kids and that they can go out and they can be in the villages. They can be out in the middle of nowhere camping and reaching people for the glory of God. Those people have surrendered their lives to the glory of God. And listen, Paul mentions people like this in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting, notice this, the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay? So these are people that have been set apart for the perfecting. When you see the word perfecting in your King James Bible, that talks about maturing, developing. So it's maturing the saints for the work of the ministry. It says the edifying. Edifying means to build up. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. That sounds a lot like the responsibilities of the Levites that we saw defined for us. And the greater the commitment is from us, guess what? The greater God's commitment back to us is. The more faithfulness there is, the more faithfulness we'll experience. The more we love God, the more we feel God's love. The closer we get to Him, the closer we'll experience it. And it's a whole thing. There's a a system here, and it's a matter of surrender, right? A surrender. Keep in mind that God sees our hearts, right? He sees our motivations. And so we will tell ourselves we're doing things for, for this or for that. But again, it's not what we do, but it's who we are. Because God, He recognizes our faithfulness in who we are, not in what we do. Are you guys okay? It's extremely quiet. (laughs) You guys all right? Okay, good. Just want to make sure nobody's like had a coma or something like that. But the point of this is God provokes us, right? to good works. God provokes us to, prov- to, to do good things, to, to, to serve, to do it from our hearts. And what happens is He provides for those that surrender to His will. And you go miss goes, well, gosh, I feel like, I'm just, feel like I'm just out there floating. I, have to, I don't have any connection with the Lord. Hey, what's your level of surrender like? Amen. How surrendered are you to the Word of God? How surrendered are you to the will of God? How surrender are you to look at the things in your life that you know are not right and they're still holding on to because you go, you know what? It's mine. And God says, no, you're, you're actually mine. You're, mis- you're misunderstanding if you believe this is about you. It's not. It's actually about me the whole time. So the sooner you deny yourself, the sooner you can follow me and the sooner you can experience what I created you for. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful promised land. I want you to experience it. But understand, there's that level of commitment that we're talking about these people that are fully committed. Now, again, this is pastors, church staff, missionaries. And so how does God provide for them? Through the offerings of the people. We saw that as God broke it down and has explained it to Aaron. And so missionaries, the way that they can afford to do what they do is because, guess what? We support them so they can do it. So they don't have to have a full-time job where they're going, okay, I'm going to go to the villages, but first I've got to go work an eight-hour shift over here so I can go do this. Another person needs me, but I can't go because I've got this responsibility at my job. And I am one of those people. There are rare individuals that get to give in this gift, and I am one of those people. And I do not take it lightly at all. I'm so thankful to you to allow me to do this. It is a gift that you offer me. And that's why, man, my heart is broken for you. If you're going through something, man, I'm right there with you. I want to see you succeed for the glory of God because ultimately we're all going to stand accountable to God. My job is to build you up. My job is to edify you. My job is to strengthen you to do better. And if you're struggling, man, I want to help you to do better. But recognize, understand, God has has a purpose and a plan for all of our lives. It's not just pastors. It's not just people that are in missions. Because understand, it's a matter of commitment. We commit ourselves to the Lord. And it doesn't matter what our, uh, our, our job is. 
because we can do our jobs for the glory of God. Listen, whether or not you're a teacher, a nurse, a, a police officer, a construction worker, a, a machinist, a pastor, whoever you are, if you do what you do for the glory of God, listen, that's what he expects of us. We all have different roles. We all have different responsibilities. We all have different ways we're going to interact with the world around us. But all of it needs to be done with one central goal, is that God would receive glory in the way that we do what we do. That's what we have to question ourselves and ask, is that the case? Do we do all that we do for the glory of God? Because I can recognize God wants us to project a testimony to the world around us of who Christ is. The way you deal with adversity, boy, I tell you, that speaks volumes to the world. Because you can go watch any kind of clips and stuff like that online and watch how people deal with adversity and what's advertised to us. It's not loving, caring communication. It's not forgiveness. It's rage. It's anger. It's vengeance. Our children are being taught a pattern of destruction. They're not taught how to love. They're not taught how to forgive. They're not taught how to give grace. That's the farthest thing from what we see advertised all around us. And yet that's what the Bible tells us we're supposed to do. This is why we're here. Second Corinthians, or Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says this. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive, notice the wording, the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Christ. He says, hey, listen, you're working towards an inheritance right now. Are we mindful of that in the way that we live our lives every day? Are we prioritizing the Lord over our selfish desires? Sadly, most people are not. Majority people, even Christians, it's not the way they live. But that doesn't mean that we can't, right? We get to determine. We get to choose. No one chooses for us. The society will try to influence us, but the Word of God tells us what we should do. The question is, will we surrender to it? Will we do what God calls us? See, God saved us and sanctified us unto his service to bring glory to his name to the world around us, that our godly testimony would speak volumes of who he really is, reflecting the righteousness of God to a broken world and in the service that we render to our community through the name of God. Colossians 3.22 says this, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. Not with eye service as men pleasers. We're not doing this for, for man, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And as children of God who are doing what we do for the glory of God, we're doing it out of obedience and gratitude to our loving Lord. Can I tell you that, listen, not only is God going to provide for us on the earth, which he most certainly will, but can I tell you also this, that God wants to reward our faithfulness, and he will, not only here on earth, but in the life to come with a godly inheritance. So much better than we can possibly imagine. And so let's ask ourselves, if Moses stepped in and said, who is on the Lord's side? What would we say? Me, Lord. Me. Easy to say, but the way we have it resonate into eternity is the way we live. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, providing for us your word. Thank you for the incredible truths that contained in it. And Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, as we come today. All of us, Lord, I think I'm confident, Father, that everyone in this person in this room, 
wants to live that surrendered life. Every person in this room wants to be that one that has a testimony that seeks and speaks of the glory of God, that impacts the world around them for the glory of God. Help us, Lord. My brothers and sisters are struggling right now, dealing with whatever adversity has come their way, whatever challenge is placed before them, whatever weight they carry on their shoulders, whatever sin is trying to beset them. Lord, I pray for you to intervene in their lives. I pray, God, that you'd help them. I pray that, God, you'd lift this burden off of their shoulders. Lord, that they'd come to a place of surrender and they'd say, you know what, Lord, I cannot do this. And they're right, they can't. But God, would you lift this burden off of them as they surrender it into your loving arms. God, you tell us to cast our care upon you because you care for us. And Lord, I know you love everyone in this room. And I do pray for my brothers and sisters right now that are bearing the load. God, help them to surrender to you. And God, take the life that you've given them. Help them, Lord, to live it for your great glory so they can experience not only your love, oh, but God, your miraculous provision on this earth. You have an abundant life prepared for us. Lord, the only reason we're not experiencing it is because of ourselves. So help us to get out of the way that we might experience it. And for those that are here today, you say, maybe you say, I don't know where I stand with God. I don't know what my relationship with God is like. Guys, 21 years ago, somebody asked me if I died today, I was going to go to heaven. And I said, I hope so. I believed in God, sure. But did I know Jesus Christ personally? Did I have a relationship with him? Had there been a point in time in my life when I ever came to the realization that I was on my way to hell because of me? Not because of, an, of a hateful God, not because of some lie that I've been told in a church, because the realization was I knew I was lost because of the choices that I had made. And I was told there was a loving God that loved me no matter what I had done. And he was willing to receive me and restore me no matter where I came from, no matter what my background, no matter how bad my failures had been. And it was that love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that love was extended to me on that night. And by faith, I received the gift of God. If you're here today and you've never done that, you've never received the gift of God, you have a chance to do that now. It's not a magic prayer. There's no ceremony involved. It's just a willing heart. It's all about the heart. So if you want to call it to God, I'm going to lead you in prayer. You can do this in your heart and your mind. You don't have to pray out loud. And you can pray and ask God to come into your life. You can ask him to save you and have that relationship that you've always wanted. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, Lord, I pray that you work right now. If you're here today and you want to receive Christ, repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I fully understand not only that I've done wrong, but there's a penalty to my sin. And it's a place called hell. I recognize that's a truth. And right now with my whole heart, I'm asking you to forgive me. To pay the price for my sin. To redeem me and restore me through your death on the cross, your burial, and your resurrection. God, come into my life and save me right now, I beg you. I thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer and saving my soul. And God, I will see you one day in heaven. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks.